A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, senior editor at the Canadian Jewish News, co-host of the Bonjour High podcast and the Feminine Chaos podcast, and contributing columnist for The Globe and Mail. Hi. Hi. How are you doing, Jesse? I'm doing good. I'm glad to have you here. Today we are going to be asking the question, how many firebombings does it take before the newspapers recognize that Canada has a little racism problem? I think maybe we just found out. Also, back to the beach with Justin Trudeau. He's been in Babylon for too long. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Lisa Del Cole, Janelle Powers, Rachel Taylor, Derek O'Connell, David Fiander, Jane Hope, Brendan Allen, and Denby. I'm Denby, an amateur elder care provider in Toronto, which I do not consider the epicenter of the known cosmos. I support Canada Land because they put shit on Queen's Park, and when they find fuckery, they call it out. I don't swallow everything Canada Land feeds me, but there's plenty of news and commentary that I won't learn elsewhere. I should add, it's kind of embarrassing, and there's no other way to say this. I don't find Jesse annoying. I'm sorry about that. I'll try harder to fit in. Phoebe, it was uh, not a great Christmas for the Jews here in Canada. The racism stuff kept happening, and that led to a couple of pieces in the newspapers that I want to point out, because I do think that something has shifted in the way that all of this is being covered. The first is a masthead editorial from the Globe and Mail. The headline is, When Protests Become Acts of Intimidation. Quoting from that piece, Globe and Mail writes, This is not protest. This is intimidation. This is not free speech. This is hate speech. This is not just a crime. This is a hate crime. And the Toronto Star's editorial board, they had a piece titled, When Hate Turns Violent. And here I'll quote from that. 
demonstrations that target Jewish Canadians because of actions of the Israeli government that target the neighborhoods where they live and businesses where they work are more than wrongheaded. It's intimidation. It's anti-Semitism. It cannot be tolerated. So this might seem at first glance like they've been writing about, you know, anti-Semitism is bad. We've been reading that in the press since uh, October 7th and beforehand. The difference here, I think, is twofold. One is that these are masthead editorials, which are typically quite boring and also represent the position of the newspaper itself. And the second thing that hasn't happened before is that they have directly linked the anti-Semitism to the pro-Palestine movement. And that's noteworthy that The Globe's done that, but it's certainly noteworthy that the Toronto Star has done that. What do you think might have inspired this change of heart? Why now? Obviously, like the attack on a Jewish deli in Toronto. The Toronto Police Hate Crimes Unit is investigating a Wednesday morning fire at this Jewish-owned deli. Windows were smashed and Free Palestine sprayed on the doors. And the shutting down of a road in a Jewish neighborhood of Toronto seems like that would be what was the catalyst, right? We begin today in a prominent Jewish neighborhood in Toronto where a series of nearby protests have sparked controversy. This was the scene on the Avenue Road Bridge over Highway 401 on Saturday. Pro-Palestinian protesters have been demonstrating on the overpass for nearly a week. Yeah, I, th- I think that both of those incidents, and it's interesting because there were incidents preceding this that were arguably more serious. You know, the fact that there was a uh, firebombing at a synagogue in Montreal, the fact that a Jewish school in Montreal, like there were gunshots fired at a school twice. Mm-hmm. And that did not seem to right. inspire this, nor was the, was a bomb plot from some youth in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this delicatessen, which was titled International <laughs> Deli Foods. Oops. IDF. <laughs> But it was it was graffitied free Palestine and then and then a Jewish business was burned. And then this kind of like there, like there's just no explicable reason why the bridge at Avenue Road and uh, the 401, like why this particular like and apparently protesters were coming from Scarborough and all over like why why that area? And I'll say here, this is about 40 seconds from where I grew up mm-hmm. in Armour Heights. It's a Jewish neighborhood and it's not like. And we've seen this at Jewish community centers. This is like a residential neighborhood. Mm-hmm. This is just protesting Jews mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. what Israel is doing. So I think that those things, there's an element of Toronto centrism in it, you know, like when it Maybe. happens in Toronto. Maybe. I mean, I have a few theories about why now. And one is, and I guess they're a little cynical, some of them maybe, but I think that this topic, as with all topics, only stays at the center of people's attention for so long. And I think there was a moment when being extremely, extremely, extremely furious at Israel, pro-Palestinian, taking that stand was sort of the main thing that you would care about on the left. And I think maybe that's just like things peak. So it could be that while there was a moment when you had people arguing, as you I'm sure will recall, that protesting in front of a JCC is actually fine because, you know, a lot of Jews support Israel and, you know, JCCs host events that have to do with Israel. So, you know, actually, actually, this is really the fighting the good fight. I feel like the maybe the moment has passed when people are going to be amenable to something like that is one possibility just because like people move on to its next thing. And it doesn't mean that there's less devastation in Gaza. It just means sort of next thing. There's also, though, the fact that the Canadian government did the U.N. vote. Right. Like what exactly is being requested now? I'm not entirely sure because it seems like Canada is not saying, like, you go Netanyahu, do whatever you feel like. 
So I don't think that it's any less of an emotional issue. I don't think that people care any less about what's happening in Israel. But it certainly was in a moment when, when the protests were downtown, when the protests— Oh, I think people might care less who are not— who already baseline didn't care. I think that there was a moment when people who didn't otherwise care about this topic felt they had to have a feeling about it. And that may, moment may be passing. I just I'm think the sure. overwhelming evidence, like there was just a moment where like everything that happened, there was just a vociferous, vigorous, like if you said the word anti-Semitism, like, no, don't weaponize that term. That's not what's going on. It's because of X, Y, and Z. And then as the incidents mounted and mounted and it just became like the justification that there's some tangential link to Israel became thinner and thinner until we're just seeing Jewish businesses firebombed and Jewish neighborhoods intimidated and harassed. And then those excuses melt away. And it's just like, yeah, this is this is turning into a protest movement against Jews. And it becomes unignorable. And I think you can even track a difference in the language that in the case of the star, here's some earlier coverage. There's like trends in the language. When they were first covering anti-Semitism, not from the mass editorial, but as sort of reported pieces, Nazi salutes and swastikas in Toronto schools leave Jewish students feeling unsafe. Elders in the Jewish community say they feel unprecedented anti-Semitism. And like, we'll report that they feel that way, but we're not going to confirm that there isn't anti-Semitism. We're certainly not going to report that it's linked to the pro-Palestine movement. CTV woman says that she feels insecure in Toronto after being unable to report anti-Semitic graffiti. The Globe, Canadian Jews are heartbroken and extremely anxious. I agree with you. That that has been driving me a little nuts with the coverage of this topic, that it always becomes about feelings, which are there too, and that's something. But I feel like I, I feel like here I am using my feelings. I would read about like how does Amy Schumer feel at this moment in time and, the, and then read about like a Montreal school being attacked, you know, and I'm thinking, well— you know, this isn't all about people's feelings, and it certainly isn't all about celebrities and their feelings. I also I felt like they were kind of describing, you know, there was the suggestion that like, you know, we're just a bunch of anxious Jews, you know, like, I don't know. There's like, I, I feel like there's anti-Semitism all around. It's very, it's making me, it's giving me spilks. Uh, and, <laughs> and it's like, you know, oh, this old Jew, like these, like they went and they had this piece about elderly Jews. Uncle who, Leo who, from Seinfeld. Yeah. And yes. it's like, no, this is actually happening. So it's, it's, I guess, finally, it, it, this is what it took. And, you know, I think there was another piece to it too, which was that the cops have been tolerating mm-hmm. these protests day after day after day. And then there was this image that went viral of the cops actually bringing a coffee, a box of Timmy's coffee to the protesters. And the backstory of that is that somebody wanted to, you know, some supporter of the protesters brought coffee and the cops were actually kind of protecting the protesters. It's a safe space where people can't come and join unless they're going to go protest with them. So the cops said, oh, OK, I'll deliver this to the protesters for you. And this enraged people because it's, you know, it actually reminded me of the Freedom Convoy. I think it's almost like agnostic to the cause. And and in many occasions, I think it's probably what the cops should do is like, let's not crack heads and arrest everybody, even though this is not like a protest that has permits and whatnot. Let's try to de-escalate. And I think their hope has been in both cases that if we just sort of allow this to play itself out, that's better than cracking down on it. But in both cases, they probably shouldn't have let the protesters go in the spaces that the protesters were allowed to go because it emboldened them. And they kept pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope until there was a problem there that wasn't going away. Well, could I just I just want to quickly, though, interrupt just to say that I think there has also been, though, this coverage pretty much since Trump was elected U.S. president in 2016 of unprecedented rise in anti-Semitism. That has been kind of 
a story for now several years. And I think that for also understandable reasons, I think it's been hard to explain. With I mean, it, it shouldn't be hard to explain because there are all, all these concrete <laughs> you know, number figures and incidents and all of this. But I think that when you just see rise in anti-Semitism, I think even some Jews, and I include myself, eyes will glaze over until you have the the data and the Yeah. Yeah. And and I think data is important as, as much as, as as specific incidents. And, spe- and specific incidents. The specific incidents sure. are, are are pretty alarming. And and I have noted I've been looking at this all over the world and it's more serious here than in a lot of places. You're not you're not seeing synagogues being firebombed in the States. You're not seeing Jewish businesses being torched. There was one in New York, I think, like like a sushi restaurant where there was an attempt, but schools, gunshots. uh, This does not make Canada look particularly great. No, I actually took it upon myself to, to like see like, okay, we've got the anecdotes. We've got like these specific incidents and I can't find corollaries. What about the data? And, and what's a good way to look at this? And I found that there, there actually was a pretty good apples to apples way of looking at it because both the New York cops and the Toronto police released hate crime data about what's been going on since October 7th. And you kind of have to analyze them a bit to get to the sense of, of like the truth of it, because of course the New York numbers are larger. New York has got three times the population and I don't know, like 1.6 million Jews versus mm-hmm. 188,000 odd Jews in Toronto. So the number of course is going to be bigger in New York, but it wasn't that much bigger. And I broke it down into a kind of statistic, like a ratio of incident per person in the, in the affected minority here. So hate crime incidents per Jew in Toronto versus per Jew in New York. And what I found is that it's six times greater in Toronto than in New York. Not surprised at all. I'm from New York originally. I was back pretty recently, like I guess a couple months ago. And in areas that I don't even think of as Jewish areas, there were the missing person hostage flyers everywhere. Yes. Everywhere. Maybe because there's so many because more Jews there are in New York. So, and this is a demographic issue. This isn't a, about policies. But they've had else. vigorous pro-Palestine demonstrations. Yes, yes. There, there's, you know, Yes, but I think there is a baseline sense that there, if you are a pro-Israel Jew or even a Jew who's wishing Israelis the best but maybe not pro-Israeli government, whatever, you do not feel alone in New York. In Toronto, what I noticed when I came back is just – so in my neighborhood in West Toronto, flyers are uniformly pro-Palestinian, right? Yes. So it's it's different. It's a different, a different feeling also There's to also speak a, of my feelings. I, I think there's also a different police response. That too. And the police, you know, protest is something that, you know, hopefully we have free expression in both countries, but that doesn't mean that I can just go into the middle of the street and and start yelling my political message. I'll probably be arrested pretty quickly. But the protesters who have been shutting down the bridge at Avenue Road in a Jewish neighborhood have been tolerated by police and handed coffee, whereas in New York, I think they arrested like 150 people. We looked into it and uh, our producer, Aviva, got in touch with Toronto cops and they confirmed that, yeah, they, they have made an arrest. A guy was arrested, investigated, released with no charges. But that does seem to signal a change in policy. So like that, that to me is is pretty alarming. That stat is pretty alarming. And like, you know, this is sort of rough math because it's not as if each hate crime has one victim. But if you kind of do that rough napkin math, if you are a Jew in Toronto, you have a six times the chance of being. This this does not. This is exactly it completely lines up with the day to day, like what it would seem like, I think, in the two. The day to day lived experience, because because when you do have that much hate crime directed at such a small minority, it's affected my life. And like I know all of the places that have been hit. I know many people like it's it's uh, it's felt really, really distinctly. So it's. It's uh, like a relief to finally see that reflected 
in the coverage to the question of why. Why is it so much worse here? The National Post has a theory, and they also had a masthead editorial. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And I want to read from it. Hate in the streets fueled by Trudeau's post-national vision of Canada. So they, they, they attribute it to a couple of things. One is Trudeau. It's his fault and his ideology, which I didn't know that Canadians care about so much. But what I took particular notice of is that they blamed it on immigration. So not just DEI and whatnot, but they basically say we are not screening for Jew hatred and we should start doing so. And the National Post provides like kind of exactly no substantiation for this. Beyond one example, they provide Adil Chakawi, who is a religious leader in Montreal, who has said many anti-Semitic things. And on the basis of this one anti-Semite statements, they are suggesting, I think, something that should offend, you know, any Muslim in Canada. The idea that they they need to be screened, uh, the idea that like, I mean, I think that by and large, Muslims and Jews in Canada live side by side harmoniously before October 7th and in community since. So what's left in what we're talking about this, these demonstrations are like, you know, we're no longer at thousands of people. We're down to like dozens of people. So I really want to push back on this, this narrative. I don't want to lend any credibility to a narrative that this actually is. Muslims versus Jews in Canada, and that's what's going on. I think it's much more easily explained by the wildly different police responses. So this is the op-ed, the the editorial, sorry, Hate in the Streets Fueled by Trudeau's Post-National Vision of Canada. Is that what you're talking about? So, yeah, I read this as well, and I I mean, I I, sort of to yes and, I guess. Um, I mean, I think there's this, to me, read like, to sort of paraphrase their stance, we have our pre-existing views Recent events only confirm what we already thought about things that may or may not even be related. So that was sort of the the essence of it. As for whether there's anything to it, so I, I'm an immigrant to Canada. I recently became Canadian. And at my immigration ceremony, it really was largely about the terrible things Canada had done. And this surprised me. This was not what I was expecting. I wouldn't say that I was angry about it. I wasn't happy about it. It was just like a neutral. I'm just. It was not particularly what I was anticipating, that the judge would talk so, so much about all that Canada has done wrong, because that's not, you know, <laughs> what you expect maybe in that setting. Yeah, so, uh, sort of like you figure that's a time for some patriotism. <laughs> yeah, patriotism as well as a kind of understanding that most or many of the people in that room, you know, have been through difficult times themselves. Certainly most of them were racialized people. It, it, it seemed like an interesting choice that I think is certainly fair game for Criticism. I don't know that I'm the one to, who'd be criticizing it, but it's certainly something that I could see somebody criticizing for reasons that would not necessarily put them on the right. So I, I can kind of understand the case for, you know, a more positive Canadian identity. However, would that help Jews or not? I'm not sure. I don't think that's self-evident. I think having— It's a theory, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, but like, it could also go the, very much the other way. Yeah, so yeah. that's what—that's the thing that jumps Patriotic to mind. Patriotic yes. nationalism has not yes, always been a exactly, friend to the Jews. Exactly. You know? So, I mean, I read the three editorials and the one that I felt sort of the safe space for me. You no, know, the, the one that, I mean, made most sense to me was the Globe one that I could get into what came up with the—I mean, it's the star, obviously, like a close second after that in this post. I don't even know. But, yeah. I don't really see how any of this relates. To me, this read just kind of very similar to what's happening in the States with the attack on academia and all of this, where 
basically the right has been mad at academia for a while and at DEI for a while. And it's like, you know what? Let's make this, let's tie it into the news cycle, make it about anti-Semitism, yes. even when it doesn't really have anything to do no, with they're Jews. they're using their pre-existing. Exactly. So to me, this reads like the Canadian version of that. Like they have their stuff they care about. Oh, let's tie it into the news cycle. Let's pretend it has to do with Jews. Yeah. I feel pretty neutrally like, yes, obviously, to the Star and the Globes pieces and the National Post. Like, please don't try to sandwich me into or use me as some tool for your for your anti-Muslim rhetoric. You know, the Globe and the Star thing, it's not like these are great pieces of writing. They're just kind of like, wow, it's really taken this long to just get to where I thought we had been previously. Well, they, they're different, though. And are, are we going to talk about the differences between them? Because I think they're like they're very different. They're, the Star tiptoes, for sure. Well, this I mean, the Star, it's not just that the Star says also Islamophobia, which, yes, also Islamophobia, although whether you have to include that in something about anti-Semitism is a separate question. Similarly, if you're talking about Islamophobia, do you have to talk about anti-Semitism? I don't think you do. I think you can talk about individual issues. But also, this is from the Toronto Star editorial. Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow, for example, should convene local faith leaders, Jews and Muslims with prominent voices. To speak. Okay. I mean, it's definitely rather than one is more in the policing end than the other, certainly. Yeah. And the faith leader, I mean, this is like, does this even have to do, like, how much does faith enter into this? It seems a little... Yeah, like uh, if rabbis and imams know. get together, is that going to change anything on the street? Like, I And don't... are the Jews and Muslims affected by these issues necessarily religiously observant? Is that even the meaningful category? It's kind of a separate question. Yeah, I think my takeaway from the difference between the two is just that the star was still trying to fit this into some kind of a like, communities need to all hold hands and get along, whereas the globe is like, enough of this shit. You know, like like this has gone different too far. policy implications, I think. Pretty yeah. I think they are actually quite different, even though I mean, I think you could do both. Like, I don't think that you have to pick really, but they did seem to come at it from pretty different places. Why does this matter? It, you know, I think most people couldn't care less about a masthead editorial, but I think it does still like I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing, but but it does seem to be a part of a wider breaking point where the cops have also said, I think they use that term. This is like a turning point or something like that. This is this tipping point. This is not graffiti on a bus shelter. This is not lawful protest protected by constitutional right. This is a criminal act. It is violent. It is targeted. It is organized. And the mayor, Olivia Chow, has come out and she's also released a statement about this. And... And again, we see the same language that we saw in those earlier stories. You know, Olivia Chow, mayor of Toronto, says incidents like this leave people feeling shaken. All residents of Toronto deserve to feel safe. Doesn't use the word Jew once. You know, Trudeau, he spoke up about the anti-Semitism. He called it terrifying. So again, it's about these feelings of fear and terror and, and feeling shaken. I don't feel unsafe. I feel angry. Like, I, I feel angry that it had to get to this point. The, the most recent incident in Toronto is like some Lubavitchers coming out of a synagogue were spat on. They were assaulted. Do we really have to have Jews being spat on in the street for this to be taken seriously? So I'm angry about how hard the fight has been to just make this recognized. There's been so much pushback, denialism, gaslighting. You're being too sensitive. You're centering yourself. This isn't what we should be talking about right now. You're being too anxious. I'm angry about the dozens of times that I've been accused of, like, supporting genocide in, in my attempts to talk about this. I guess the, the question, and this does come up and I think is one of the stronger points of the Star editorial, is 
Is this actually helping anyone in Gaza to be nasty or worse to Jews in Canada? And, I mean, I'm not seeing how it would, you know? And I think that's sort of, not that that would excuse it if it were, but it's just become completely disconnected. It should be pretty clear that you can have any which view about, well, with some parameters, the Middle East without wanting people to be, you know, doing hate crimes in Canada. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. Phoebe, it's your first time joining us here at Shortcuts. You may or may not be aware that we do not like it when important news stories go unread or unnoted, so we duly note them. Have you brought something that you can duly note today? I have. I'm going to duly note the complete collapse of the Toronto public library system oh, for please do. many, many months. You basically can't use a library. You can enter a library. So it's not like during the pandemic where you couldn't physically always go in. No, you can go in, but you just can't get books. Basically, the whole system for borrowing books is kaput because of some sort of cyber attack. Although why this is lasting for so many months, I don't know. This started, I think, in October. We're now in January. You can't borrow books. You can't go to your online um, account to figure out what you've checked out, which means that everybody just probably still has the books they checked out initially Every You can check out books, but they have to write it down. It's some weird system where basically now if you go to the library, there just aren't books in it in your local branch. It depends where you live. But like in our local branch in Ronsi, like the kids section is basically cleared out. And who knows whether those books will ever return? Who knows whether the whole system will ever come back? I really hope so. They were saying January. It's It's January. I don't know. I personally have been impacted in terms of just like bringing little kids to the library, but also doing research. I'm writing a book. I need to get books. And where are books? 
I don't know, not non-Toronto. And I think this has bigger implications, though, in terms of just knowledge if you talk about misinformation. So I wrote about this also for the Canadian Jewish News in one of my columns. But basically, like, if you want people to be getting their news from somewhere better than TikTok and to understand, like, the history of the Middle East or whatever, if you can't get a book, that's going to be a little limiting. So I think this has bigger implications apart from my day-to-day, wouldn't it be nice to take a novel out of the library feeling? But it would. It would be nice. So my plea is that people care about this, that the media does a bit more on this too. I think it's sad that we have to even like explain why libraries matter. Like it's it's a crucial part of public life. The cyber attacks have just wiped out our system. It's a, to remove that. And it just, it feels again, like another piece of civil society of just like the parts of, of our shared universe that matter. And going on really unremarked. I feel like this is not a really hot topic. Duly noted. I want to duly note couple more things about Middle East coverage. So often in Canada, we're in these fights about how we process and how we headline and how we discuss other people's coverage. And we're just not hearing like the journalism that for me matters most, the the eyewitness accounts. And I have to uh, hand it to FrontBurner because they had a recent episode where they interviewed a doctor who was uh, doing emergency medicine in Gaza. And the episode is called Life and Death at a Gaza Hospital. It is a hard listen. It is visceral. It is, I think, important to bear witness to what is happening. This is a Syrian-Canadian doctor, Anas Al-Qasem. And it just seems thorough, informative, and it has that urgency that eyewitness accounts have. And and it's important to not forget that that is the the source of the story at the the moment. And I'll also uh, mention another story that I had trouble getting through, which was the New York Times Screams Without Words how Hamas weaponized sexual violence on October 7th. There's been so much denialism about the use of rape and sexual assault as a tactic of war by Hamas. And this is a thorough account. It took a long time, maybe too long, for this to be written down. But I want to duly note it because there are still people who want to deny that this happened. It is hard to read. It must be read. Duly noted. This episode is brought to everybody by Douglas. Are you tired of uh, not being able to fall asleep? Uh, no, I, I have little kids. I fall asleep fine. <laughs> I would fall asleep fine in this chair. No, just kidding. I appreciate your honesty about this. <laughs> if you wake up uh, and every muscle in your body is just like feeling creaky and sore, if your mattress is not as good as it could be, it's the time. It is now. Get a good mattress. Get a new mattress. Uh, if you've been putting it off, Douglas is surprisingly affordable. In just a few minutes, new mattress can be on its way to your house. You don't need to go to some weird showroom with fluorescent lights and lie there in your in your clothes while a salesperson looks at you. That's weird. No haggling necessary. No pickup necessary. They send it to you in a box. End the shitty sleep cycle. They're giving listeners to this podcast a free sleep bundle valued at up to $650 with each mattress purchase. Get your sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillows protector free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Justin Trudeau feels your pain when it comes to the affordability crisis, and he's showing it by, well, going on a luxury vacation. So uh, Trudeau's office is clarifying that he and his family, including Sophie, Sophie and the kids, everyone's down in Jamaica, at, quote, no cost to taxpayers. Justin Trudeau's vacations have sort of come up annually since he became yeah. prime minister. Uh, this most recent one, sort of a $10,000 a night freebie uh, in, yeah. was it Jamaica? Or? Yeah, in Jamaica. Yeah, yeah. 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 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's recent vacation required a second aircraft after problems with his government plane. Does this bother you? Does it bother me? It's, I guess, pretty low on my list of concerns, I would have to say. Uh, Jesse, does it bother you? You know, it's been a tough year for JT, <laughs> uh, some family drama. It's been a tough year for everybody. Probably a tough year to uh, run Canada. Like, have a fucking vacation. Right? What? Leave the guy. He went to the conflict guy. He said, is this a conflict? He did his due diligence. He's trying to keep it together. The ex was there. The kids and their mom trying to make it work. Recharge. Don't you want a, a well-rested prime minister who's got a nice tan? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I would like Justin Trudeau to have a nice tan. It's very but, important. Um, sure. That's, that's important to me more than this story. Yeah, I think— so I come at this as as an American, also a Canadian, but uh, an American of longer standing. And I just think about Trump and I think about all that Trump has done and the great likelihood that he's going to be president again. And then this just looks like the absolute smallest potato you could imagine, which makes me think this is like there's something kind of quaint about it. But it also we've talked about ways where Canada maybe isn't looking so great relative to the states in certain specific areas. But here, you know, if this is the worst that's happening, eh, doesn't does not seem that corrupt <laughs> to me. This doesn't seem I, like it. If it's indeed corrupt at all, it just doesn't seem like... I mean, I think I, I certainly... I'm not going on such a vacation myself, and I share this sort of populist, I wish I were on this vacation. It's probably stressful, right? He is there with his ex. Like, that's probably not the greatest time. It doesn't offend me. It doesn't enrage me. It's not corrupt. But it's so dumb. How can he be this dumb? Dumb. Must be a really nice vacation. Must be a really nice place. Like, he's down in the <laughs> polls, like, severely hurting. There was an element. It's not corrupt, but he, he told the Canadian press that the family would be covering the cost of the vacation. You could be forgiven if that led you to believe that he's paying for his own vacation and not getting a $7,000 a night freebie from a friend, which is, I, I, that's nice. I got some gifts from friends. Nothing like that. <laughs> But it's not like this is like a, a big surprise. In 2019, he got shit for going to Florida and flying back to Ottawa on the government's dime for 21 hours. Also in 2019, I went to Costa Rica and everyone raised an eyebrow when they found out that it cost $200,000. The uh, Trudeau family paid for 57000 of that. Then, of course, he went to Tofino. Nothing wrong with that. That seems like a nice local vacation. But he did so on the first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. There, of course, was the 2016 trip to the Bahamas to Aga Khan's private island, which, A, cost the government $215,000, but was then determined by the Conflict of Interest Commissioner person on, but I don't remember, it violated four sections of the law, the Conflict of Interest Act. And then in 2022, bad headlines again for a luxury resort stay. The economy is in the shitter and people are not going to look like kindly on this trip to give him some free advice, which I've just been doing very generously. The real price tag that I want to know is how, how much are we paying all the advisors? Because this is like better advice than he's getting <laughs> and it's free. Stay away from costumes and vacations. <laughs> no more costumes, no more vacations. That's all. That's all he needs. Like, if, if he does that, he'll be a lot further ahead. Phoebe, what would have been a safe vacation for the Trudeaus? I just keep thinking of the 30 Rock line where Alec Baldwin's character says, I need a vacation from this vacation. I need a vacation from this vacation. <laughs> 
because that's just for some reason stuck in my head now. A safe vacation. You're Justin Trudeau. I'm you're, Justin you're, Trudeau. You're stressed out. You'd rather not have everybody talking about this right now. Uh, you could do a staycation. <laughs> that's what I did. It's actually great. It's actually all of the stress of getting there, but maybe the Trudeau doesn't have to worry about that stress. But you're, you're just immediately relaxing. Canada's wonderful. That you know, there wasn't a lot of snow on the ski hills, but you know, if you go, we go. I'm sure maybe, maybe in the Rockies. How about ice fishing? How about everybody piles into a station wagon and it's it's a road trip to Florida? Nobody could get mad about that. <laughs> Bring Sophie. Oh, sing-alongs in the car with the X for all those hours. I'm sure it would go. You know, they're skiing somewhere. outside of Ottawa, Calabogie. The Trudeaus could have gone to Calabogie, mm-hmm. maybe. I don't know anything about, apart from what I studied for the citizenship test. Don't know much about Canadian geography. I know there's Montreal and Toronto. I'm sure there's other stuff too, and I'm sure it's lovely. And Justin Trudeau, why don't you go check some of that out? That shortcuts. Sure Phoebe, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jesse. This was great. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. My email address is jesse at canadaland.com. I read all the emails that you send. Phoebe, where can people find you? They can find me on, I'm going to still call it Twitter because I can't do the X thing, um, mm-hmm. at Bovi Maltz there. And yeah, I guess that's probably the best way to reach me. And your podcasts are Bonjour High and, and Feminine, Feminine Chaos. Chaos. Check that's them out. Right. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. Theme music is by So-Called Syndications by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you will get stuff, premium access to all of our shows ad-free, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, But more than anything, you will become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. 
Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.